0: Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Tyler Sharp. Tyler is an adventurer, sportsman, conservationist, and world traveler with a gift for telling stories through film and words. While he may be best known for his photography, focusing on Americana and Western lifestyle, travel, and adventure, Tyler's also built a substantial resume that includes filmmaking, directing, writing, and creative strategy. His work has taken him to some of the most spectacular and far-flung regions of the globe, with an emphasis on East Africa, Montana, and his home state of Texas. As a devoted hunter and fisherman, Tyler has chased game in some of the world's wildest regions, giving him a global perspective on the importance of natural resources, game management, and sustainable hunting practices. As you'll hear in our conversation, Tyler has thought deeply about the practical and ethical implications of hunting and fishing, both abroad and here in the American West. His sincere devotion to conservation and adventure shines through in his work and has made him the go-to photographer for iconic brands such as Filson, Cabela's, and Stetson, just to name a few. Tyler and I met up in Estes Park, Colorado, just outside of Rocky Mountain National Park, for a fun conversation that could have gone on for hours. We discussed his beginnings as a professional photographer, which started in earnest when he moved to East Africa just out of college. And he's got some intense stories from his times over there that include run-ins with lions and jaguars and elephants. We covered his thoughts on conservation and how his time traveling abroad has given him a clear understanding of conservation issues facing the American West. Then the conversation took an unexpected but very interesting turn when we chatted about his commitment to Kung Fu, meditation, and Eastern philosophy. Be sure to check out the episode notes for the full list of topics we covered and links to everything we discussed, because we definitely touch on a lot. This is a wide-ranging and fun conversation that takes many surprising twists and turns. Hope you enjoy Thanks for having us. And um, the way I've been starting these interviews is I ask folks when you meet somebody for the first time, and they ask you the question people love to ask: What do you do? How do you
1: answer that? Well, I do I do several things, but you know, I, I guess I would describe myself as a a creative director, writer, and photographer. And so, um, in you know, less technical terms, I. Never really had the luxury of just doing one thing. I always sort of, in an, in an effort to get my foot in the door with a company or a brand or an organization or publication, I, I, you know, am able to do multiple things. I know how to write mm-hmm. and come up with creative concepts um, that has strategy built into it. Uh, I know how to shoot photographs. I also know how to operate, you know, shoot video and direct. So because I could do all those things, I would sort of tailor them to proposals or to, to companies I wanted to work with. Um, in an effort to, to show value in, in a, an unending sea of competition and, uh, and, and hopefully increase my chances of, of getting work. So, if you
0: had to kind of narrow down the subject matter that you work with, how would you describe
1: that? I would say, you know, for the purposes of a website bio that I've been yeah. trying to do, um, it, it typically comes down to, Outdoor adventure, so a lot of hunting, fishing, um, Americana, and Western. Um, I have a grandfather who's a cowboy in a bootmaking town in Texas, and that's always been an interest to me, and uh, and, and and outdoor adventure, travel, that sort of thing. Yep. So.
0: Yeah, and that's what initially attracted me to, to your work is I came across you on Instagram, and then we have some mutual friends, Stephen Smith, who I interviewed, and um, it, it really just seemed to have a huge overlap with my interest and the interest of people listening to this podcast. So I want to dig into all that. And I think probably the best way to do it is talk about where it started beginning. Where did you grow up? Um, how did you get interested in photography?
1: Yeah, I'll give you the, the shotgun answer. Um, grew up in Texas uh, for most of my life. Uh, did a couple of stints in Kansas City, Missouri uh, for dad's job. But mostly in Austin and then Grapevine, which is in between Dallas and Fort Worth. Okay. And was always into outdoors and, you know, I was always digging around in the creeks trying to catch snakes and lizards and obsessed with hawks and falcons and that kind of thing. And um, ended up going to school in Los Angeles at USC.
0: What attracted you to go there?
1: Uh, I don't know, actually. It was just – I was always going to go to UT because it was a state school sure. and I had – good enough grades to automatically get in and just some, actually it was on a ranch in Wyoming out mm-hmm. in, in Moran outside of Jackson. Hole. Oh yeah. Which, which ranch is the Absaroka ranch. Yeah. And, uh, one of the Wranglers was looking at my portfolio, right, right. The summer before my senior year of, um, of high school. And they said, Hey, did you ever think about USC or UCLA? They've got great, You know, digital media and photography programs. And I said, no, I never did. And I just remember, I'm sure my dad was like, damn it.
0: (laughs) Could have been free. So
1: I just got this idea in my head that I wanted to go to Los Angeles. And it's that sort of excitement of, um, you know, leaving, you know, leaving home and going somewhere else. And, um, you know, looking back, it's probably not the most ideal situation, but I think it really forced me to decide where I stood on a lot of issues and, um, really, sort of ignited a, a passion for outdoor exploration and, and conservation and that sort of things, because I'd be in Los Angeles and I always likened it to Mordor because there was this big, one of those big San Bernardino fires when I was there between 2002 and 2006. Okay. Yeah. And I came back every time you'd come back to Los Angeles um, from a, you know, Christmas holiday or whatever you fly in and you see this box of smog uh-huh. over the downtown area, which is where he lived. And then com- combine that with dark smoke and ash on everyone's car. And I got this idea in my head that, you know, downtown Los Angeles was Mordor and I needed to escape. So I'd go to Big Sur or Joshua tree uh-huh. or, or, um, or the Mojave or, you know, further up North into the redwoods and really started to, to, you know, value those escapes. And, um, and then I just got lucky, uh, really, just fate, I guess. My first job out of college was in Tanzania, uh-huh. and so through some uh, serendipitous, you know, meetings, uh, I got offered a position to go work for a safari company in yep. Tanzania. And so I, I moved, I said goodbye to all my friends in Los Angeles, moved back to Texas, sold a bunch of stuff, bought, went to REI and Cabela's and got a bunch of gear, and went to Tanzania. And was in the bush for five months filming and photographing big game hunting safaris. Did
0: you go over there with with the intention of doing photography? Is that what they hired you for? So they
1: basically hired me to film the safaris. So they had clients over there hunting buffalo and – Crocodile and Planes Game, and they basically wanted me to go on the safaris with them, film these safaris, and then they make these sort of DVDs at the end with the dual goal being gathering promotional footage for them to use when they go to the trade shows to help book more safaris and stuff. And so I was – my official job was cameraman. I was filming. Sure. And – but I was also taking still photographs in my own time. And Had you
0: ever been there before? No. So you showed up to work and you lived there? Yeah. And what was
1: that like? I I remember – you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time outdoors, and I love animals. But to go from you know South Central Los Angeles to South Central Tanzania, yeah. where there's literally—I mean, you take a bush plane three hours out in middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. There's no phones, no internet, no. They had a, they had a CB radio, and I remember they had the the client tents that a little bit nicer with you know the the nice old lanterns, uh-huh. and they've got the bed frames in them, and they pump water mm-hmm. from the river with a sink and a toilet and all this stuff. And I remember going to be like, Oh, this is not, this is going to be so bad. And they're like, No, 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 your tent's back here with the staff. <laughs> and I go back and it's, you know, it's still not a bad tent, sure. but it wasn't that. And they took me back off into the dark. I had never seen the camp, so I didn't know really where I was. Didn't really, there weren't any other lights. The, the pathway wasn't lit like by the client tents. And they're like, All right, well, you know, good night. We'll see you in the morning. And I remember putting my bags down and, um, there were hyenas not too far from, um, from camp. And, uh, and then an hour later, a lion started roaring too. And I remember, you know, so you could hear it. roaring. Oh yeah. Tonight. So I, I like, you know, put some toothpaste on my toothbrush and was like, Oh, I'm gonna go out here and brush my teeth. And I step out and I hear the lion roar I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to brush my teeth tonight. So that, that first night I was there, it was, it was pretty scary just cause I had no idea where I was. I, I didn't even see the camp in the daylight. I yeah. thought I was off by myself and I had no idea how safe you are in a tent versus not being in one with hyenas and lions. And so yeah, the first night was a little bit unsettling, but sure, I learned through through experience that it's all good. So
0: So you showed up there and you would you had committed, did you say for 5 months? It-
1: yeah, and it was uh it was the best and worst experience I'd had up to that point. Um, the company was run by a really sketchy Really sketchy group of Tanzanians um, who were originally from Pakistan, and they were double booking safaris, and yeah. they were running out of diesel, and basically the owner fled the country with people's <laughs> money. So I was stuck there. They, uh, my visa expired. They didn't get my work permit. They never paid me, and so and and I and, and all the other camp staff, same deal. Like nobody sure. was getting paid. We we're like, what is going on? I have no way to get a hold of anybody. I have yeah. no friends there. And there was one other cameraman who was from Latvia. Uh-huh. And so I was 22 at the time and he was 18. So we became good friends. Um, but, yeah, so I basically, uh, at the end of the season, I'm like, I'm an American. I've never been, you know, out of the country for an extended period of time. In America, your visa expires. It's kind of a big deal, mm-hmm. right? So I'm a little bit worried what's going to happen when I try to leave this country. And uh, this guy's like, "Oh no, I'm not shira bona." Like, no problem. You just put the passport in the money, and you know, I'm like, "What? You want me to grease the customs officer?" He's like, "Yes, yes, bona. I'm not shira. No problem." And uh, so I, sure enough, like, put a hundred dollar bill, hundred over my expired visa in the passport. We show up to the customs, hand it to the guy. Looks at it, takes a hundred bill out, stamps it, hands it across, and then we just walk through. And Oscars and I went straight to the bar and got like a double whiskey. And uh, so I, I came back to the U.S., completely broke, uh-huh. completely changed my life, you know, spending five months in the bush. Well, that's
0: what I, one thing I want to ask. How would you, if you looking back, how do you think you were different from when you showed up, never having spent time there, to when
1: you got home? Just, it's hard to explain if you've never been. And honestly, a lot of people will probably never have the opportunity to experience what I did mm-hmm. because... You can't go to these game reserves unless you're either a client of these hunting companies or you're a game scout or a staff. You can't just go as a tourist.
0: And are the clients generally – it's pretty high-dollar stuff.
1: Uh, it depends. Yeah. Yes, it's high dollar, but the range of clients. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, wealthier business oil men mm-hmm. who go do this, but there's also guys from, you know, Germany and Spain and, um, and South Africa and, and guys from Kansas who saved their money for 10 years to go, it was their lifelong dream to go hunt, you yeah. know, a lion in Africa. And, um, so there was a range of that, but just, I mean, growing up in the West uh, or in the, you know, the Western world and, and being fairly privileged, uh, at least having like a comfortable lifestyle and then going out there. And I mean, you hunt for your food oh, and yeah. you know, they would, they would ship in some produce with the, with the clients and stuff. But for the, for the most part, if your client couldn't shoot, you weren't getting meat. Sure. So it was in that whole thing and just being, you know, decompressing from technology and all that sort of stuff and you know the first week or two you know you'd feel a vibration and you check your pocket and make wait my phone's not my pocket my phone's not on it's back in the tent yeah you know 75 kilometers away sure um and what year was this that was 2006
0: so uh, yeah it was the cell phones were were very yeah prevalent yeah
1: and so um but yeah just you know getting chased by Buffalo and charged by lions and, uh, you know, chart, you know, I got attacked by leopards and lion- all kinds of stuff, black mambas and poachers. And, uh, all, you know, there was a couple of shootouts. And I mean, what was scarier, the
0: threat of wildlife or the threat of people?
1: I would say it depends on where you're at. If you're in the city people, yeah. Um, Tanzania is pretty low key. Sure. But, um, but now that I have so much experience being in the bush, I don't really fear the wildlife. Like you sure, there's tense more. moments where a, you know you come around the corner and there's a cow, elephant, and her baby, and she starts you know swinging her trunk, and you know that you got there's there's only a couple things you can do, and sure. most case, chases in most cases it's going to be a mock charge or something like that. But it's happened enough that you know the, the instinct sort of kicks in. So
0: if you had to. Thinking back, if you had to pick the one experience that was the craziest thing that ever happened to you when you were there, is there one? Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> uh, so it would have been in 2009. Um, I had gone back. Um, so a- after that initial trip, I started going to the Dallas Safari Club Convention, sure. which is in January, and, and I'm meeting companies and safaris and you know ex- Kilimanjaro expeditions and just started showing my photos and video, like trying to find a way back over there. And I did. And I got uh, hooked up with a booking agent who booked a lot of these adventures all over the world. And um, in the three years that I worked for them, um, and it eventually turned into TV shows for the Outdoor Channel. I mean, I, I went to 25 countries or oh, something wow. like that. But on one of those trips, we went back to Tanzania. and We were in this floodplain called the Kilimbaro area. Mm-hmm. And the grass is about 15 feet tall. And we were hunting buffalo. And you hunt by boat. So you're going down the river. And there's a three-story – there's like a boat, a double-decker boat but with this metal tower ladder that was built. And a Maasai would sit up there and just look for the white oxpecker birds. And so you can't see if it's an elephant or a buffalo. All you can see is the white birds. And so when you'd see it, he'd he'd pull this string that would ring a bell, and we'd run the boat into the bank and just hike in there, hoping, Uh one, that – it's a buffalo, too, that they don't trample us, and three, that there's a decent male in there that, you know, is potentially a huntable, yeah. you know, species. And so, anyways, that's sort of the landscape, but there's a lot of lions out there, and it was ungodly hot. I mean, it was uh, over 100 degrees, but because it's so humid and it's very close to the equator, it was just – it was rough. And the zipper was broken in our tent, right? So there's the canvas zipper and that was rolled back and then there's a mesh and on the mesh, the zipper was broken. And I kept telling my friend Georgie, uh, who was the PH, the professional hunter, Hey, we should get this fixed. And he's like, Oh, don't be, a, don't be a wimp. You know, it's blah, blah, blah. all right. Fine. But my bed's right by the door and he's over here. Well, this was the last time I took malaria pills because they, um, they just mess with your yeah, that's what heard dreams. Heard. It depends. The, the larium is a weekly pill. Don't ever take those. Malarone is a daily pill. Doxycycline is okay. That yeah. one's fine. I was taking larium, the weekly pill. Woke up from this murderous nightmare. Just, just awful. Like uh-huh. sweating, heaving, <sighs> like panicking. And it took me a couple seconds to figure out, all right, it was just a bad dream. I'm in the tent. It's all good. Calm myself down. And then I hear... <sighs> which is a male lion right behind the tent and the zipper is wide open and I'm like oh shit Uh, so I'm like do I have time to run outside the tent untie both flaps roll the canvas down jump back in unzip it and by the time I even twitched to think about going out there he called right next to my head outside the window do you have a gun in the I uh, don't the PH does uh but it's a four seventy double rifle under his bed and he's snoring. Sure. You know, and I don't know if it's loaded. And, uh, so anyways, mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, well, here we go. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and, uh, it steps out this lion six over 600 pound male lion steps out is a full moon. And it's probably five, six yards from me yeah. in front of the tent. And this thing looks like, a centaur. I mean, it's huge. Sure. And it had a mohawk mane. So it, it didn't, it's mane didn't fully grow in probably because it's, it swims a lot. It's the floodplains yeah. and it's not in an open Savannah. And anyways, uh, I'm like, all right, if this thing comes, I'm going to, I'm going to try to flip the bed on top of myself. So I reached down and grabbed the bed frame. Classic. You know, the bed, like <laughs> the bed creaks and this <laughs> exactly. line just goes <laughs> and turns around and just, stares me right in the eyes. Holy cow. And so I'm crouched down holding this bed frame and this lion is crouched staring at me in the full moonlight and its tail is flicking back and forth, you know, which, you know, when cats get excited, their tail kind of, uh-huh. and I mean, he was acting like he was about to come. Just, I mean, they, and they don't, they don't kind of, they come like a freight train, you know, yeah, yeah. and, uh, so I'm literally staring at this and it felt like forever. It was it was probably fifteen seconds at the most. But it was simultaneously the scariest and most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Sure. And uh and then he just turned around and walked over to the fence and rubbed his face on the fence and jumped in the river and, and swam across and continued to howl or you know, continued to roar into the distance, sort of them them announcing their presence, you know, when sure. they do that they're yeah. basically saying, Hey, any other male that's here, get, get out. And um, so I wake Georgie, I'm like, Georgie, that lion was here. Gets up and, you know, we're in, he's like in his underwear, he gives flashlight with his double real like Elmer Fudd moment, sure, you know, sure. and this track was five, six inches across. I mean, it was huge, huge lion. And, um, you know, of course he starts acting all tough and like, oh, you know, it, let's not fix the zipper. Right. And so <laughs> anyways, so it leaves, um, next safari, next full moon, uh-huh. exactly one month later, same tent. Same lion comes back, okay? Yeah. This time, the, the canvas zipper is closed, right? Uh-huh. But he comes back, and he lays on the porch, and his body sags the tent wall in. And so he's panting. He's going like, <laughs> and it's moving the tent wall as he's doing that. And I'm trying to... You know, the, the, the windows are meshed, so you can't really stick your arm out. I was trying to find a way to get a picture or sure, film sure. it. And, you know, this was before decent iPhone video. Excuse me. Before decent iPhone video. And so that, when he came back the second time, that's kind of when I decided that he was my spirit animal. So. That's,
0: yeah, that's a legit
1: story. Yeah. I mean, so, I don't know
0: that I've ever been in that close proximity to any large mammal. Right. I mean, any wild large mammal.
1: Yeah, I've had. Quite a few run-ins. I had another run-in with a leopard in Zambia, middle of the day. They're not out during the day very often. It was digging, trying to get a, wart hole, a, a warthog out of its hole. And, uh, the PH is, is, his name is Lance, but Lance, you know, Lance. it's, uh, from Zambia, you know, uh-huh. is a British, you know, immigrants, third generation, whatever. It's toughest guys, those Rhodesian, Zimbabwean, Zambian guys. Yep. And, no windshield, no doors, wide open Land Cruiser, and he's like, "Do you want me to get closer?" Yeah, so he gets about thirty yards away, and I'm taking some video, and it's just sitting there yep. looking at us. And it had gone behind this tree stump and uh or a log, and it had its paws on the log, just watching me. My God, it's kind of boring. So I'll I'm take two still frames, and then we can go about it. I take one picture, and as I click the shutter on the second one, coming at that you. leopard just comes straight for me. And it's funny because the second picture is just a blur of grass <laughs> as I like kind of try to jump out of the way. And I, I had this big zoom lens and I was just gonna try to just try to hit him with uh-huh. it, you know, to get him off me. He's they're gonna get you no matter what. Yeah, yeah. It's just how bad it's gonna be. Uh-huh. And so I like, well, you know, jump back and leopard runs off, you know, about three yards in front of me. And I look down and and Lance <laughs> is laughing. He didn't reach for the keys, didn't reach for the gun. He's just laughing. He looks up at me and he goes, "Did you shit your pants, mate?" <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thanks Lance. So, he knew it was a mock charge, but I didn't. Oh so. man.
0: Yeah, well that's I don't know how you learned that. He must have been on the receiving end of a few of those. Yeah, had so a right of passage, I guess. Yeah. Um so, you're over there in Africa and I mean, we could talk about that for 5 hours. Um, how did you end up making the transition to Western US?
1: Uh you know, I did that for a long time and I got real burned out. Mm-hmm. Um I what, was
0: What burned you out about
1: it? Well, I was uh I was filming for a couple different TV shows and unfortunately the people I was working for didn't value my uh creative opinion. Mhm. They they in their mind in the hunting world a lot of times a cameraman is just like an 18-year-old kid that they give a camera and tell what to do. Mm-hmm. But I went to film school at USC and I had, you know, cinematography experience. I was sure. trying to make it look cool. I got a steady cam, Let's do this and that. So I wasn't – I didn't really feel respected as an artist. The pay was pretty low. Traveling all over the world it sounds amazing, and yeah. it was, but after three years of being gone for 9, 10, 11 months of the year and you can't have a relationship or anything like that, I just got burned out. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I feel like I have enough of experience and I have this portfolio. I want to do something with it. So I started trying to figure out – how I could do more editorial work or work with brands and I started sort of doing some work on the side with Filson for their their blog and just mm-hmm. trading for gear and uh um, writing photos mm-hmm. both yeah. Right, so basically, they they filson life, uh, they have a filson life blog. Oh yes, yeah, great!
0: It's I've had um, Nicholas Coleman, who's a he's a painter. Yeah, he's, i am familiar with his work. him. Yeah, um,
1: I keep I, trying to I keep trying to get him to do trade paintings for photos. He's awesome. He's too and busy.
0: You guys, you guys have a lot in common with hunting, and, and I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And then uh, a photographer out of Teton Valley named Cameron Dingle. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, she, I she, know her. Yeah.
1: Well, I I know her work. We're potentially working together on a on a magazine. Super. Cool. yeah super cool
0: um so yeah all right that makes sense fills in life
1: well and i just um started to find ways to uh it became i, I was chasing a bunch of stuff around freelance and i do you know headshots or you know some engagement portraits, just whatever i had to do to get to, to pay the bills mm-hmm. and it almost ruined it for me and i just hated photography and i despised the inquiries i was getting sure. and so that that's kind of it was this sort of breaking point when I was like, all right, well, what do I really want to do? If money was out of the equation, what is the type of photography I want to do? And, and, and I defined that and it was, you know, Filson, Stetson, Cabela's, um, Garden and Gun Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Montana, Americana, Western stuff. I worked, did some stuff, did some work with the Texas Historical Commission, and then I just started figuring out, all right, how, how can I get closer to that today? What's something I can do today to make that more of reality? And I started to take these little steps and, you know, I still had to take some other jobs, but started trying to, you know, avoid things that were distracting me from that goal. And after, as soon as I put that out into the universe, mm-hmm. it just, it started to happen. And I got a couple of assignments with Garden and Gun. I got hired by Cabela's to go document some of their, uh, fishing and hunting trips, uh, for, um, Cabela's club. And, and then just started to sort of develop this portfolio of that kind of thing. And, uh, and then basically what I started doing was, you know, I, I have my dad's friend has his cabin here outside of Estes park, and then we'd go fly fishing in Montana and I start thinking, okay, well, if they, if these companies aren't going to hire me to go do a location shoot, why don't I try to find a way to, to capitalize on the fact that I'm already going there mm-hmm. and let's make it more of a bite-sized project. And, and so I'd start pitching these things. Hey, I'm going to Montana on this fishing trip. Do you, you know, you want to send me a couple of bags and 500 bucks or whatever? Yes, Just, yeah. you know, doing things, doing whatever I could to start establishing the relationships. And, um, and it started to work. And I, you know.
0: So. Obviously, I mean, I think anybody who enjoys photography would see your career and your life and be like, that's what I want to do. And I would think a lot of people try. And So what do you think? I mean, is there one or two specific things that you've done that have allowed you to separate from the crowd? <sighs> I mean, from, from listening to yeah. it, it sounds like you're willing to give up front, like you're willing to... to
1: yeah, and that's a fine line because people will take advantage of that sure, for sure. sure. And I've I've been taking advantage of before. Um, uh, but I think that the most important thing is really dialing in exactly what it is you want to do mm-hmm. because I think I made the mistake of chasing around too many different things, uh, trying to survive as a freelance photographer. And I, I've actually had lunch with several young photographers in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the last month, um, Them asking me those very questions and they're like, hey, I work for an oil company or, hey, I work for this. I'm like, keep that job right now. Keep that job because if you go all in right away without a plan and a a very, Mm -hmm. you know, distinct portfolio and direction, it might kill it for you. Mm -hmm. It might ruin photography. And it almost did for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important thing is really knowing what you want to do but then also go out and do it. You know, you may not get paid for the first year or two. You just got to go out. Like with Filson, I said they would just, they would trade for gear Mm -hmm. and that's not going to pay my landlord. But I went out and shot three or four of these stories and those are things that can go on my website. And to an outside perspective, I mean, that's work I did for Filson. Yeah. They didn't hire me and it wasn't this, you know, four day on location shoot with art directors and all this stuff. But for the purposes of anyone else looking at my website, those are portfolio pieces. And so defining what you want and then going out and getting relevant work Mm -hmm. because, you know, you could, you could be the nicest, most charming person and, you know, talk someone into doing it. But if you don't have any work to show, then that's going to be a lot harder. Sure. And so, um, but then beyond that, uh, I just never ever gave up, and it, it's kind of a ignorant stubbornness in some in some cases. That's the common uh,
0: theme, man. I read so many biographies and, and talking to people like you, and yeah. that is the one common theme: is they will, refuse to give up and work harder than everybody else.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know, I, I've I've worked really hard in ten years, and really only in the last two or three years do I feel like it's paid off. And I still, I mean, I still um it's still hard, you know. I, I'm doing it all by myself, and this last year I brought on, you know, like a a bookkeeper and a financial planner, and I'm bringing on. I hate to use the word assistant, but somebody who's going to help me with inquiries and keeping email lists and sending out work that I finish and helping like plan and schedule Instagram posts and. Just showing more work because I, I mean, I, I barely have put anything out that I shot in 2016 and I went all over the place and I just was so busy. I didn't have time to sit down and edit things and put them together in a gallery and write this story about here's what we did. And so I'm trying to get more organized about that because it is, there's definitely a formula that the successful people apply to that. And I think if you can get into that habit early and just be on top of it, You know, so much of it is just the way you're perceived online. It is. You know, it's amazing. uh, Not, I'm not saying I'm faking anything, but you know, I do. uh, In fact, I've, for a long time, everything I posted online was where, where I was and what I was doing. At a specific time. And I was really lucky that I was getting to do all this stuff, but now it's not so much because I've been working on some larger projects and directing and creative directing that now when i post something you know I, I posted a photo the other day of montana and uh and my girlfriend's mom texted her like what is tyler doing in montana <laughs> like he he just got back from new mexico so so sometimes there's a bit of confusion there so uh, so i guess that's another thing at least being genuine and honest with the way you're portraying it and and not misleading a lot of people paint this uh, unrealistic picture of, you know, I have a perfectly styled desk and I have this freshly brewed coffee yeah. and I'm creative all the time. Like that's not, that's not me. Yeah. Maybe that is for somebody, but yeah, I feel like your, your
0: online presence, your Instagram and, and any other social media, it, it really, it nails it because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know you, um, but I, I knew your work because it just seemed to really fit with the the kind of my professional and personal interest. Mm-hmm. And you know, sitting here talking to you is perfect. You know, I I feel like the pitch of it is perfect. And one thing, there seems to be kind of a a conservation theme throughout yours. It's not like there's any sort of activist message or anything, but there's there's definitely a theme of conservation that runs through that. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And I think um, just going back a little bit to what you're saying, uh, you know, my girlfriend really helped me realize that I am a brand that the and way she's a designer. For yeah, yeah. And so she did my branding and, and logo and all that. And I never, it never crossed my mind that the, the way I live my life, the things I do, the people I meet, the places I go, that those are, that's a life, that's a lifestyle. And that a lot of times the, the work I get and the reason I get hired is because of the type of person I am. Yep. And so I, I've embraced that not in any of this, like, Flashy signature way, but just in a sense that this is, you know, I mean, I have a style of doing things and, and I try to be genuine and, and, and introspective and insightful and, um, you know, going into the conservation thing. Uh, you know, hunting in Africa is a very controversial topic. Mm-hmm. Even hunting in the United States is a controversial topic. And, uh, just, it, it's crazy how not only Uneducated, but misinformed—that most people are about this topic. Yes, because the reality of the situation is that hunters pay for—and I don't know the exact percentage, but we're, let's say to be safe, between ninety-five and ninety-eight percent of the mm-hmm. conservation worldwide, mm-hmm. right? Especially in Africa, they do these censuses. They determine, okay, there's this many animals in this game reserve. This company is required to be stewards of this land, yeah. right? If because if someone's not a steward of the land. Anti, or poachers come in, farming is constantly encroaching on, on these park lands, uh, population expansion, and that sort of thing. And so they issue a certain number of permits based on the number of animals. And they say, okay, you, we can realistically take 15 buffalo in this area. Mm-hmm you know or and this is where it gets really controversial is with elephants, right? Mm-hmm. So the elephant population in Africa, um you'll hear it from different sources whether it's yes, there are ivory poachers who are killing uh elephants just for their tusks, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the same as hunting. Right? True. And there's other areas in Africa where there's too many elephants and they've knocked over all the trees and the Kalahari desert is expanding and it's killing uh, native species, the, the bushbuck is gone. It's extinct because the elephants, there's too many elephants and they knocked over all the trees. So the desert's expanding. Well, a way to manage that is to bring in hunters and yep. instead of just killing a bunch of them, they, the hunters pay, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 to shoot one. It lowers the herd and then 30% of that money goes to the local village for schools and wells and medical. And this is all managed by the government of Zambia or Tanzania or Botswana or wherever it is. And they have game scouts there at all times who are rigidly recording the animals. And you you have to shoot males. They have to be over a certain age. They can't be out of a a herd or a pride or anything like that. And so there's the reality of the situation in Africa, and then you come over to America, and these all these animal rights groups. Um, you know, are animals beautiful and and wonderful? And do they do they deserve uh, you know healthy, free lives? Yeah, mm-hmm. but since the dawn of time, the relationship of human versus animal has been one of hunter and prey. Sure, right, and sustenance. And sure, most people don't live a life where they're required to you know hunt to live there there's some people out you know maybe in Montana and Wyoming where yeah they'll go shoot a deer or yeah. a elk and that's their meat for yeah. for four months um but you know they they paint this picture of anyone who kills an animal is a murdering you know bloodthirsty savage like that's not not case. even close not even close and the reality at least in Africa is that if these organizations were not in place that the second uh that they were removed, um the demand for bush meat, the the rapid expansion of farmlands and population and just poaching in general would wipe it out. Oh yeah. Same.
0: And, it's the same here in the American
1: West. And so um you know those systems are in place. Uh I've I've tried to put it simply that, you know, one of these animals dies and and the amount of money it brings in is, is one of the most effective means of conservation. I know that's, that's a difficult pill for some people to swallow. Mm-hmm. Well, like, how is killing one animal conserving others? Well, that money that's brought in pays the salaries of all the people who protect the, 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 the greater good in managing the herd as it relates to the quote, the, the actual grass and the quality of the landscape and the not having trees being knocked over, mm-hmm. um, on a longer timeline. Because most Africans, and when I say African, I mean, uh, like, you know tribe like village villages tribes that still exist sure. that are for the most part living their lives the way they have since the beginning of time they think in the moment they think about now they're not thinking about 6 months from now mm-hmm. and so there are programs that have been put into place that are trying to educate them in in a way that's relevant to their lifestyle hey look if you just reduce your herd before the dry season and, and use that money to, re, to reduce your herd to buy grain and molasses mm-hmm. to feed your herd that then when the rains come back you can get them back and, and that helps the grass grow back and all this yep. so they're trying to do that sort of thing in place but um hopefully i'm not i'm not rambling too much here but no no it all point, point being sense. that um you know that those those animal rights groups and things um, are doing actually, in my opinion, more harm than good because they're misinforming people about the reality of the situation. And they're actually roadblocking the people who are doing the most conservation work. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they really cared about conserving the animals, they would take emotion out of it. And these emotion-based hate campaigns um, and sending mail bombs and anthrax mm-hmm. and kind of like wildlife tourism or wildlife terrorism yeah, in it a is. sense it is. um and actually be logical about this and have a, a conversation because now with the current administration we don't really know what's going to happen they've yeah. made it pretty clear that their one of their main interests is f- infrastructure for pipeline and and like they're trying to grow mm-hmm. fossil fuel production right well that's going to threaten federal lands and national parks and game reserves and so What's the most important thing here, actually protecting the wildlife and the land or, you know, or, or, or this like petty mud throwing battle over, you know, who's right? I think with those
0: animal rights groups, it's, it's a very easy thing to throw out there for the masses to, to buy, buy into this very simple thing like hunting sucks. And any, the, the reality is is complicated and it requires a lot of thought. And any just one sentence answer is not the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's lazy, kind of sloppy thinking. Yeah. And if you just look at basic history of the United States, if it weren't for hunters, there wouldn't be any bison left. There wouldn't be any elk left. Everything would be wiped out in the West. Yeah. And it's and that's and and you look at you know so that was the days of Theodore Roosevelt. And then you look at the, today, and you know this new administration was threatening to start selling off uh, public land, and it was the Hunters they were, you know obviously some climbers and record mountain bikers, but hunters came together and started ripping their representatives that were supporting this thing, and it got thrown out last week
1: yeah and that 's what 's interesting to see is you know sometimes there 's a, a a battle between you know traditional sportsmen and hunters and you know outdoorsmen h- hikers rock climbers like sometimes there's, they don 't always agree or, or you know there 's sort of this clash of, of what the, the use of public land should be. But it was in, it was really encouraging to see people who are on opposite sides of that spectrum actually come together for a common cause. In mm-hmm. that case, which is, okay, no, it's – the most important thing here is that this land stays public, whether it's for hunting or whether it's for, you know, hiking. It, it's still important that we have access to yep. it, you know.
0: Well, I think people like you – that's one of the reasons that I want to ha- have this podcast because people like you get it in that you're a hunter, you're an outdoorsman, you've climbed Kilimanjaro, you know, you love the mountains, you love to fish, you love hunting, you love, you know, all that stuff. And there's so much more overlap than there is differences. Yeah. And I think there's even the case with the hardcore environmental movement. You know, I, I work so much with ranchers, and a lot of ranchers cannot stand the the so-called environmentalists. And these are ranchers that have conservation easements on their property, but it's just a... Uh, I think it's just people are, are lazy and they're not willing to have a an in-depth conversation about
1: it. Yeah, and and so without going too far into it, we're um, I'm I'm involved in a a group of guys that started something called The Modern Huntsman and, and eventually we're yeah, going to ask you about we're gonna eventually going to launch a publication and it and it's basically going to be sort of a an edu- educational platform. Um, and that's when you said Cameron Dingle, she's someone that we've talked to about being a contributor and, and Travis um, Gillette from Filson and um, Ford Yates and a couple other people who are, have become well-known for that sort of work to be an alternative voice um, to the hunting and conservation world, because there is this sort of side. Um, and I'll be the first one to admit that, yeah, there are people who act like rednecks and give it a bad name. And mm-hmm. that there's these big brand, you know, industry things that exist that, that make it, sort of in my opinion, lose its honor and and traditional value. And so we're sort of trying to come out with this middle of the ground thing that takes it from both sides and isn't heated in the debate is, is more fact-based and logical and, um, And so in the, in the case of, like you said, environmentalists and ranchers, and I remember this, this debate broke out on an Instagram photo that I posted. We went, uh, it was a story that we were doing for Yeti. A friend of mine is one of their barbecue ambassadors. Um, his name's Justin Fortani owns pecan lodge barbecue in Dallas. Okay. And we went out to West Texas on his ranch, um, on a quail hunt. And it was me and two other guys and we went out with the hunt, uh, with the purpose of hunting just enough quail to cook a dinner for ourselves, right? So we, we harvested these quail and I took this photo of, of all the quail. We had put them, we didn't have, you know, a, an ATV and all, we didn't have dogs. We were just on foot. And sure. so we were actually putting the quail in his hat in a Stetson. Mm-hmm. So I took this photo of, of the hat with the quail in it and, it, you know, their sons were there and they helped us prepare the birds and and then he seasoned them with his secret, you know, sauce and we cook this amazing meal. Well, this fight broke out on an Instagram photo that I posted, people, you know, calling me a bloodthirsty murderer and I'm not a man without a gun in my hand. And if I was dropped in the middle of nowhere that I, you know, I die in a day and all this kind of stuff and I wouldn't survive a second and all this crazy stuff. And literally somebody said, why can't you go to Whole Foods and buy your meat like everyone else? (laughs) It just doesn't get it. Well, that was, and I, and I actually try mm -hmm. to address all of these remarks with logic and have a conversation, which doesn't happen because they're reacting emotionally. They're not, you know, they're not responding logically. And so I, you know, so it's like, where do you draw the line? It's like you complain about the beef industry and, and the, the methane, Problem and and you know that that's wrong. Okay, okay. If you don't want me to go buy beef or or you don't want me, to eat, then then I'm. Gonna, what's wrong with me going and harvesting an animal legally that's part of a conservation program? Mm-hmm. So it's it's like just knowing what the facts are and if you're being responsible because that's really what it's about. It's about personal responsibility. And I can't speak for everyone else, but I I don't hunt that many things, and when I do. It's going home and going in my fridge or freezer and I'm going to eat it and make a stew or, a, you know, grill it for my friends or whatever. Yeah,
0: I, I, that that's one of the things that really, it, it burns me up. And it, we were talking about Nicholas Coleman. We talked about that a long time in our conversation about, you know, the, this really messed up idea that, that people have. And I, I think in the end, it's in the age of social media and people just don't. They don't have the attention span to to dig deep enough because it's not like you have to dig deep. If you just scratch the surface, it it makes sense to me. And I'm open. If somebody has other ideas and they want to convince me of it, I'd love to hear it. But I've thought about it a lot, and I agree with everything you said.
1: Well, the thing for me, and this is what it came down to, at least in that particular argument, is, you know – for whatever reason, which doesn't make sense to me that, you know, I mean, there's obviously quite a, a growing, it seems like a growing vegan movement in the United States, which great, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to live a healthy life and, and you personally don't want to be responsible for, you know, taking life. Well, plants are still life too. And yeah. so it's so like where do you draw the line? You're, you're still taking life yeah. regardless. And yeah, it's not an animal, but just because you personify the animal and you think it has all these emotions, doesn't mean that it actually does. Yep. And being shot, uh, cleanly with a rifle is a much less painful death than the one they typically experience in, in the wild. And so that's fine. If you want to live that lifestyle, great. Okay. But this aggressive attacking mentality that a lot of them have of getting in people's face and insulting them and calling them names and drawing them into conflict, that to me seems to be a complete complete contradiction of what a vegan lifestyle is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And and you don't see a lot of hunters going out and getting in people's faces and, you know, and and like shaming people. Eat meat. Yeah, Yeah. It's like people do it, but a lot of that's in response to, well, they're you know, being pushed. The whole PETA people eating tasty animals bumper stickers. Yeah. Like, that's an obviously a response to some of the, in my opinion, extreme things that PETA's done. Um, well, it's
0: hard if you're being attacked in any, in any situation. It's yeah. hard to sit there and take it. Uh, right. The, and,
1: the response is fight back. And I just I think the point for me is that, you know, it's important to just be open minded. And just because you feel like you have a belief system or a value system that, doesn't mean that you should impose it on someone else, that you you have no idea the sort of life they've lived or the morals they hold and that they're different. And and we live in America, and and if America is gonna continue to be what it should be, that that shit needs to stop. (laughs) You know, like realize that there's lots of people who think and act and live their life differently than you. And, yeah, there's things that require calling out. And there are things that are detrimental mm-hmm. to a society or bad. You know, that I think we can all agree on on common moral ground. Yeah. But yeah. emotion needs to be taken out of it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I and it's, it's so funny because we're in this age where there's unlimited information. Yet it seems that people are more... Uh, or less informed than they've ever been, or less less interested in
1: digging deep. Right. They. It's very surface level. It's all surface level. Yeah. Well, um, I read it and I saw a post that my friend yeah. liked, and it led to this website that no one's heard of, and and now it's a fact. Yeah. Actually, no. That's <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> um,
0: so, if you had to define the word conservation, how would you how would you define that?
1: Hmm. I mean, I don't want this to sound morbid, but I think the the word conservation is much different today than it was back when Teddy Roosevelt sort of started the concept. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in its base form it's a um a management of the wildlife and, and natural resources that we have mm-hmm. to make sure that they last on it on a, a longer timeline. Yep. Um I think that today uh, it's really hard not to despair, especially when I've seen what I've seen in Africa and just going just in five years mm-hmm. the amount it's changed it's at this point, conservation really is kind of damage control, yeah, yeah, there are limited resources left. There's only so many animals and and I think that and I, and I don't I don't want I hope that I'm wrong, right, but I think that in the next five years that we're going to see a really dramatic drop in African wildlife. Really? Yeah. And I hope I'm wrong, but just with the way it's going and, 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 you know, foreign pressure coming in and development and and mining and, and infrastructure development that it it, it, it sucks. But if if something doesn't have value in Africa, Mm -hmm. it doesn't survive. Sure. Right. So as long as these animals have a, a price tag on them, whether that's, a photo safari or a hunting safari, and the price tag is much higher on a on a, on a uh, hunting safari, it's not going to last. And I think that the important thing here is uh, illustrating that value. And so in the American West, yeah, people go out to Grand Canyon or they'll go to Yellowstone and they'll take their iPhone picture out the window of the buffalo standing there. Mm-hmm. But until people realize what, is at stake in the fact that there are sort of shadowy operations going on that could take that away or, or, you know, things start to shrink before it's too late. I, I don't know. To me, I just, I think it's a, a matter of managing the populations are expanding. Mm-hmm. Cities are expanding. Development is expanding. It can't go on forever. Or if it does, yeah. where do you stop it? And, and so in my mind, <laughs> conservation is, Keeping that wild aspect as sheltered as possible mm-hmm. and, and managed, uh, it, it can't – the reality is it, can't, it just can't be left alone anymore. We're, we're not in a day and an age where there's enough wild spaces where it, it's just going to balance itself out yeah. because the populations are too big and people are going there and there's going to be, you know, run-ins with trucks and, you know. Yeah,
0: everything. I mean, everything from highways to, to water.
1: Yeah, you know I the, agree. the whole system.
0: Yeah, and um, so – Yeah. Well, that, that's, I think that's a great definition. And in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's not far off from the, the, um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, definition. You know, I mean, he was, that's why one of the reasons he created the national forest was to, to manage it and be sure it's around forever. So I think, um, there's a lot of truth to what he said and it carries, you know, carries forward to what you're saying, which is cool. Um, this is a hard right turn here, but Mm. your buddy (laughs) Stephen told me that I needed to ask you about your, Kung fu,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been practicing and teaching kung fu for about eleven years now. Have you really? You teach it too? Uh huh. So when I was younger, um, I did some judo and and taekwondo. Everyone does their you sure. know, their little stint in taekwondo. Um, and I just I've always been into uh, sort of. Asian spirituality, I was really interested in the samurai when I was a kid and the bushido and, and the, the hagakure, and all that and and old kung fu movies and then, you know, the Matrix sort of pop, popularized, you know, sure. a little bit of the kung fu and mainstream. And, uh, yeah, I just um, – and I've always sort of – I've always been into meditation and – Have you really? Uh-huh. And, I mean, well – I've always been into it. How frequently I practice it varies on the, no, on the travel I know, schedule. I know how to deal with that. Yeah, but I just – I don't know. And I, growing up, I was always into King Arthur and, and the, the knights and, and, you know, my mother's side of the family is, is Comanche. And so I've always oh, really? been – Yeah. She's from Nakona, Texas, which is – named after Chief Peter Nakona, which was the last chief of the command. Yeah. He's, I read uh,
0: Empire of the Summer yeah. Moon, which is, so,
1: yeah. Kona Parker. And so, yeah, my grandparents still live in Nakona, Texas. And so I've just, I've, I've always grown up around that sort of, uh, code of honor and, and, and chivalrous nature. And, um, while we don't live in a time, you know, where that traditional sense of warrior and, and bravery still exists, I try to apply it in other aspects of my life. And one of those is practicing martial arts. Mm-hmm. And, It's funny because it's something that almost no one has ever seen me do. It's this part of my life that is probably one of the most important, strongest foundations of who I am as Uh a person, as far as discipline and and confidence and uh, and and keeping like a. I'm also a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah, that was also and and the the Jedi are based off of. They're an amalgamation of the samurai, the Knights of the Round Table. So it all it all weaves together, and so. you know, the, the Jedi only uses what they have for knowledge and self-defense. And it's the same way with Kung Fu. And I practiced, um, an animal style for quite a few. So tiger, crane, leopard, uh-huh. snake, and dragon. And then about four years ago, I switched to Wing Chun, which uh-huh. is what Bruce Lee studied. And all the Ip Man movies are based off that. And, um, it's a very uh, technical, close-quarters style that's based on, Reaction and and and, and um, counter attacks using the opponent's force against them. So uh-huh. um, yeah, it's it's been an important part of my life, and, and thankfully I haven't really had to use it very much. Uh,
0: well, I think that the being able to use it physically is is great, and it's probably you know, makes you feel better if you're in a, a sketchy situation. But I would think the the mental benefits are what it's all about in the end. just the way of thinking, the discipline.
1: Yeah, and I've you know without again without trying to sound too morbid, I mean I've I've been to quite a few places around the world. And I've seen some, some pretty dark stuff and I've seen some evil stuff that has no explanation other than that's just a, that's just an evil person and you can't rationalize what they're trying to do or you can't beg for mercy. They're going to do what they're going to do. And if you're not able to defend yourself, you know, just I'm I'm going to be able to. And sure. that's something that I think is important for me and my family or friends or whoever I'm with, uh, that I, I see myself as a sort of – as lame as it sounds, a, a protector or a warrior. And, I don't think that sounds lame. Like you know? It. And um, so, yeah, I mean there's there's been seven or eight situations in the last 10 years where something came to a confrontation over – in most cases, it's just people being drunk at a bar sure. and trying to start some – some crap, And I think that they can sense uh, yes. that, that I'm not afraid. And, and, you know, without doing some, you know, wild like <laughs> pose, you know, I sort of take a stance that's out of their striking range, but within mine. And I'm watching their feet and watching their elbows and watching their eyes, knowing if they do something, I know how to react. Yep. And I think in almost every case that – they've decided that they didn't want to really try something because it seemed like well, it was the confidence. I'm yeah. sure
0: it's the confidence you project. Cause you, know, when you see people, you know, whether or not you can mess. Yeah. With
1: and that's, that's honestly one of the most important things I learned is there was this guy in my old school and he was this short, short black guy. He was probably five foot five, mm-hmm. you know, had these super thick uh, Coke bottle glasses, you know, Real soft-spoken, and he literally worked at a grocery store as a, mm-hmm. as a as a bagger, mm-hmm. right? Looks like the most unassuming, you know, almost like nerdy kind of like mm, computer yeah. gamer guy. But that guy could kill you twenty ways in two seconds. <laughs> I mean, he was a wicked martial artist, and you would never know really by looking at him. You know, I mean, he kind of reminded me of Steve Urkel a little bit. Really, yeah, but even shorter and like a little more socially awkward. Mm-hmm. But this guy would toss you through the wall, you know. And I remember, you know, getting put on my back a couple of times in class and just thinking, you never know what yeah. people are capable of. And so, you know, there's a lot of guys who are into UFC and they go out and they act tough and fight start fights. But you never know, you know. I think for the most
0: part, more times than not, the, the real tough, tough people – you're not going to know. I okay. mean, you can tell by just their sense of confidence. Yeah, but they're not the ones mouthing off. No, absolutely. Like, I don't think Navy SEALs go into bars mm-hmm. stop telling everybody mm-hmm. they can whip their ass. No, they just do it if they have. To. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> um, well, man, there's so much to talk about, but I don't. I, I know we, we're bumping up on time. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so there've been there are a few questions that I like to ask everybody who comes on because um, I get some really interesting answers. And so the first one is. Are there? Do you have any favorite books that you generally that you've given to people or that you recommend? And it could be about the West, it could be about martial arts, meditation, just books that are important
1: to you. Uh, Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, his famous book is called The Power of Myth. Yep. Um, so I don't know how familiar you, you are with him, but in, in a nutshell, he's a you know probably the the most. He's not alive anymore, unfortunately, but the the, the most renowned uh authority on, on mythology and folklore. And um, George Lucas based Star Wars off a lot of his work. And his, his breakthrough work was called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Okay. And briefly, he is an authority on all world religions, whether that's Native American folklore or Inuit traditional tales. He literally has described every culture and every fable and every allegory hmm. throughout the history of the world and how they all relate and connect. And the common theme is, you know, this, this human that, and in his opinion, religion and spirituality f- function as a way for the human to, uh, understand the unexplainable, which, which we want to call the higher power or yeah. divine. And that th- these stories, whether it's, you know, Christianity or, or Islam or native American tales are ways They're they're metaphors Mm -hmm. for us to be able to understand that information and that people get stuck on the metaphor instead of on the importance, which is the lesson itself. And so it's incredibly fascinating to see how he draws all these similarities from – and how these stories are repeated and recycled. Oh, yeah. And it's very, very inspiring, and and it's uh, it's something I always go back to. And he actually did a a PBS series – with Bill Moyers who interviewed him. So there's a DVD series called the power of myth, but that's based on his book. And that's probably the, one of the most, you know, inspirational, influential things for me. Um, Just knowing that even today with all this crazy stuff that's happening with our government, while, while in exact terms, it hasn't happened. People have been going through this crap for the history of the world. Yes. And one of Joseph Campbell's favorite or really famous quotes is that, you know, um, the the hero, the hero's journey, and that's all of us are going through life and trying to find this answer, or whatever finding that that you you that countless and countless uh, heroes have gone before us. That the labyrinth is fully known. Yeah. That all you have to do is just follow the hero's path, and he describes what that is and all of that. But it's just one of those reassuring things, like. Yeah, it make a, you feel better. Yeah, knowing you know, history. just knowing that it's happened before, mm-hmm. and whether or not it's the exact, you know, incarnation, for the most part, there's the, the been theme there's been itself. tyrants and controversy and abuse of power and you know murder and conquest for as long as we can remember. Quarter yeah. history, and there's something to learn from it, and and so that's where my work really, um, I try to, while I think that some old world modes have been outdated for a reason, there's still a lot of value in some of those things that have been sort of forgotten or left behind. And so without it being this like nostalgic thing, I, I, I still, uh, hold myself to a lot of values that I feel like have been forgotten in the modern world. Um, mm-hmm. and they're still there for a reason. And yep. and so something like that helps remind me of that.
0: That's great. And I've, I've heard of him, but I, I...
1: Yeah, specifically. You should, specifically, but you should I'll, check out the the get the DVD series. Yeah, I will. Because to be able to see him and the passion and the fire in his eyes when he talks about all this is incredible. That's great. Yeah. See,
0: that's exactly why I ask these questions. Because then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll have links to all this on the web page, sure. so for other people they can just click right yep. through. So um, you mentioned the, the PBS series. Do you have any other favorite documentaries or films, Star Wars? <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan as well. Oh, I, have, you really? I have several, several Elvish tattoos. I, I taught myself how to write an Elvish when I was 18. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're committed. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, but beyond that, you know, and, and that's all, you know, that's sort of allegorical and all that kind of stuff. But I really, it's a hard question for me to answer because – I don't have a lot of traditional artistic influences and I can't cite a bunch of directors that I, Mm -hmm. I've seen it. I love a ton of movies, but I I can't be like, oh yeah, it's this specific person and this specific person. Um, So I can't think of another documentary that was really influential to me.
0: Well, that's a good one. I'll link the the, the PBS one. I'll link Mm -hmm. to that. That sounds really interesting. Um, So this is a selfish question for myself, but when I'm out taking photos of these ranches, What's the one? If you could give me one piece of advice to be a better landscape photographer, or just say ranch photographer, there could be animals in it. What is there one, one simple piece of advice?
1: Uh, you know, I think that, and this is not something I do. It's, I wish I did more of it. Is actually using filters. Mm-hmm. It's like polarizing filters. Yep. You can get pretty advanced with, you know, a lot of cameras now. The lenses are bigger, so you have to get like an external. Uh, bracket that yep. mounts over the lens. Okay. So that's actually something that you could do on a technical standpoint to really elevate, you know, the ability to expose the sky differently from the foreground yep. and yep. things like that. And, and now there's fancy apps that'll do that for you. Mm-hmm. But I think the traditional way is a little more interesting. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, research has really helped me with knowing, okay, I, I've got a job for this client. This is all the stuff they've done before. Mm-hmm. Going and looking at all of that, seeing what's been done. And because in most cases almost everything's been done. Sure. And overdone. So if you could find a way um and this is let's call it craftiness or cleverness to do it differently. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's through looking at photos that exist or finding ways to bring a different take to it, that would be, so that that's kind of what creative direction is in a sense is coming up with uh, an interesting idea to make what you're producing unique. And so, you know, you could go watch all these YouTube videos or tutorials on how to do landscape photography and Mm -hmm. you want it to be at F 22. So you have a larger depth of field and you know, you want a foreground element or or not, or you want, you know, to crop it in an interesting way. But if you could think of an angle that someone hasn't done, it's more of a big picture. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense.
1: Because at the end it's like, what is the goal is the goal to go get a pretty picture. Well, that's, that's a pretty attainable goal. Mm -hmm. Or is the goal to get a picture that people are going to be like, Whoa, we haven't seen that before. This is really interesting. And and it's going to get shared or, you know, so that, yeah.
0: No, I think that's great advice, especially in my world, because We're not dealing with, you know, badass photographers. We're dealing with people go out and just take pictures of the ranch. So if you can do something a little bit different, it really catches people's eyes when you're, you know, when you're trying to stand out from hundreds of thousands of other properties.
1: And I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, the purpose of what you're out there doing is to produce imagery that makes what they're trying to sell or advertise attractive, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea is to go out and get – photos that most accurately represent what that is, that place in the world, you know? And so if you can sort of create, um, a a mood or a lifestyle around, uh, that Mm -hmm. so that you can see people can project themselves into that situation. Sure. You know?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. Um, if you had to pick one place in the American West, that's your favorite place. And it could be a valley, a town, a mountain.
1: Immigrant Montana.
0: Yeah. I figured you would say that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So immigrant is, uh, I mean, it sounds like you've been there. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's about, what is that? 25 miles south of Livingston mm-hmm. in Paradise Valley towards Yellowstone. It's along the Yellowstone River. Um, and it's just an incredible area. It has a lot of meaning to my father and some of his friends. But I've, you know... Uh, been fortunate to, to befriend quite a few people out there. Mm-hmm. And there's a bar there called the old saloon. That's, that's like one of the only bars in the world where they know my name. And I have like <laughs> this sort of under the table, nice. you know, drink arrangement. Uh, and it's really cool. Cause the, 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 the new owner, he's um, it, it kind of went into disrepair uh-huh. and he's a third generation paradise Valley native. And him mm-hmm. and his friends scraped up the money to buy it before it got demolished. And they've did just enough historic renovation to make yeah. it, you know, pass health code and, and make it classy, but still it's, it's, it's old original right. thing and, you know, fly fishing and it's right on the edge of, of Yellowstone. And it's just uh it's a beautiful place. And right, right next to Chico hot springs, which is another amazing place. I need to get place. back up there. Yeah. My wife's never been to Montana. And well, we we are well overdue. for Sounds like know, a good reason to go. Yeah. Well, see that way you'd be like, oh, Chico Hot Springs is a, is a spa and resort. And you can <laughs> right. soak in the healing waters. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's the sales pitch. Yeah.
0: God, and the fishing there is just ridiculous. It is. Yeah. Everything there is ridiculous. Um, what would you say is the biggest challenge and or opportunity facing the American West right now? We talked a little bit about some of that, just with the population growth. But is there is there anything else that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I think that uh, to me, you know, my way of approaching places that I visit, you know, I I don't go there. uh, I go there with an open mind and an open heart and I try to meet people on on their terms. And I'm interested in the way they live their lives and try to learn something from that. And so what really bothers me and that what I think could be a potential threat down the road is when people come in and, sorry, California, but, California and New York in particular, people are coming into the Yellowstone or the Yellowstone Club and they're like, oh, this is great, but we want to change this and we want to change this and we want to change this because it's not like it was back there. Well, don't go somewhere and expect it to be where you just came from. Like, respect the fact that these are people who've lived there and they they live their life a certain way and this is the way it is, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you don't like it, Get that's out. Else. You yeah. know, it's like, I, I don't want to be an asshole, but that's kind of the way it should be. Don't come in. Well, what's the point of traveling or going somewhere if it's going to be exactly the same as right. where it came from? And yeah. so, you know, there's a and, – and, and rightfully so. You know, people in Montana are surprisingly political when it comes to – public land or federally held land or private property. And, and, you know, all these ranches, the price are getting jacked up and, you know, a millionaire from wherever flies in and buys this. And, and what's his long-term goal? Is he going to hold on to that land or is he going to sell it to do a development? And there's been some, you know, the Yellowstone club is this fancy high-end yeah. club and a lot of, The bordering lands around that, people are complaining. They're like, we don't want bears coming through here. and We don't want moose. It scratched my Maserati. It's like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Uh, Like, this is one of the only places in the world, or not in the world, but in North America where these animals move freely. Why would you want to change that? Yeah. Don't go outside if you're scared. Exactly.
0: Or just, better yet, don't come here at all.
1: Right. So in my opinion, that's something that could be a potential threat is – uh, outsiders coming in with a lot of money and influence in changing what doesn't need to be changed because they feel like it needs to be like where they came from. Yep. I think that's great.
0: Um, okay. And so next, the last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and that's just generally people who love the American West and either through hunting, fishing, you know, endurance sports art, uh, you know, what, what would be your request for those folks?
1: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think that um, – I think it would just – at the end, it all comes down to personal responsibility. And, and even if you're if you're listening to this, I mean, ideally, it, it, most likely the people listening to this have an experience with hunting and, and outdoor conservation. But if you don't um, – consider, you know, being a little more open-minded about it and, and having conversations with people and understanding what that lifestyle is like and what the implications are and and how that process works. Mm-hmm. The fact that people who buy duck duck licenses and fishing licenses and deer licenses pay for most a lot of the national park stuff sure. and the upkeep and, you know, there are the departments, but um and then I think that without some sort of radical call to arms, you know, Wherever you see a debate or a conflict going on, trying to engage in it in a logical, uh, straightforward, non-emotional way because no. calling names and threatening and doing that is not helping anybody, you know. And so – and at the same time, um, damage control online. If you are a hunter, consider – the sort of damage that posting, uh, you know, a, a bloody photo online can mm-hmm. do, and and even though you're treating the animal with respect, someone who doesn't understand that concept may see, you know, they they see hunters standing there with a big smile on their face, holding mm-hmm. an elk up with with blood everywhere, and they think, oh, this person's, they've got that smile on their face because they killed this animal, you know, and yeah, in a sense, that's true, but it's not out of disrespect, so. Just being aware of what we put out there, how it can be used against what you know, the greater good. I think that's great.
0: Yeah. So how can people find out more about you? Um, social media, website?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm hoping to launch my new website in the in the coming week or two. It's it's just my name, it's TylerSharp.com. Okay. Uh, I've been going through massive uh, sifting through the archives and so it's going to be it's going to be great when we get it live because there's going to be all sorts of stuff that no one's ever seen um but my instagram is a great way it's just tyler sharp photo that's the one i i I keep up with the most frequently um yeah and and there's some some friends of mine who did a bio on me that'll be on the website uh they sort of did an interview similar to this and then cut a lot of the footage from africa and montana in you know intersports with the stories and and it's a pretty good they did an amazing job of of putting my story into like a three minute video. Um, cool. Which has been a great marketing piece for me.
0: Yeah. Well, when all that's ready, I'll blast it out through all my networks as well. Cool. So and awesome. I'll, I'll add links. Well, thank you for doing this. It was really awesome. Hey,
1: appreciate you having me. I'm glad we got to connect. And I wanted, yeah. We'll have to do part two, three, and four because there's a lot more to talk about. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with the emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to
1: you soon.